Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast. This is our second episode of News Talk, where we talk about hot topics, current events, and other interesting discussions in cardiac critical care. Uh, today, we have our hosts, myself, David Werho. I'm a cardiac intensivist at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. We have Jill Zender. Hi, I'm Jill Zender. I'm a nurse practitioner at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas. And Sadie? Hi, I'm Sadie Rodriguez. I'm a cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And we are excited and thrilled to invite Paul Kekia and Darren Cloakman. So why don't you both introduce yourselves? So uh, I'm Paul Kekia. I am uh, Associate Section Chief for Critical Care at Texas Children's and also Head of Cardiac Services, uh, as well as Business Operations. I'm Darren Klugman. I'm the Director of Cardiac Critical Care at uh, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore and the Director of Quality for the Blaylock Telsic Thomas Heart Center. And we're really excited to have you both here with us. Uh, for our listeners, we just wanted to focus uh, on crisis resource management today. Um, obviously, in the last year, all of us across the country and across the world have experienced crisis resource management to some extent during this pandemic. But uh, Paul, at Texas, you've had at least three different crises this year um, that you've had to contend with, uh, not only the pandemic, but also Hurricane Harvey, and most recently, the unexpected deep freeze that limited power, heat, water, and other resources that are sort of critical to what we do in the ICU. Yeah, and not only that, um, you know, then there is actually the daily rounding with Jill, which is also then a whole separate disaster crisis management. <laughs> I, I'm totally kidding, but I would not, there's no way that I'm not going to say something right off the bat on that. I expect nothing. Less. Yeah, exactly. There you go. I think they're all very different, um, but they all uh, taught us something. So it's it's fun to look at each of those things as entities that overlap, but how many of those things um, are unique to themselves. I don't know, which, where, where do we want to start? <laughs> yeah, I was hoping actually you could just give us like, sort of like a day in your shoes, what it must have been like that morning to wake up and realize what was going on, not just like in your house, in your neighborhood, but really the gravity of the situation and how many millions of people were affected and how you, how you even approach the day and start like the emergency um, planning. So it's interesting because all three, if we were talking about a major hurricane, a pandemic and the big freeze, um, actually leading up to all of them, there is an exceeding amount of similarity, which is um, for me, anyway, personally, um, the common theme was, no, come on, this isn't going to happen. It's not going to be that serious, right? Um, and it really brought home how similar all those reactions were with the freeze, because I grew up in Chicago. I grew up at a time when, you know, you know, you walk to school both ways, barefoot uphill in the snow, and you didn't complain, you know, this. But it is true that, you know, that in Chicago, especially when I was growing up, it, you didn't pay attention to the snow unless it was more than a couple of feet within a 12-hour period, or if the temperature was below, you know, a wind chill of minus 40, then people would start to pay attention. So this whole lead up to the freeze in Texas was, you know, whatever, so it's going to get a little chilly, fine. Um, and then, you know, it, so it wasn't that day, it was more sort of by, Jill, if you, do you remember, was it the first day by the evening when it was like, 
Oh, and actually, this is turning into a problem. Yeah, I think so. I think it developed rapidly, but I think it also continued to progress into things that you would never imagine. And similarly, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. So I think of a little bit of cold weather, a little bit of snow, but I don't, I don't think unless you truly live the situation, you can appreciate how Texas just doesn't have the infrastructure to handle cold at all. It, it snow, right. ice, even the smallest amount is, is detrimental. So it's for those of you listening, they're like, yeah, okay, big deal. It was a little bit of cold. There's a little bit of snow. I think that the lack of resources w- was truly not understood until that point. And that's where the biggest similarity comes with the pandemic, right? That it was this slow, like slowly but surely we got overrun. Um, you could see the signs, but you never thought it was going to be that big until it then blew up. And that was that was the freeze versus in Texas, especially hurricane wise, you know, it's coming. You can see it's coming. They predicted you have the spaghetti models that everybody along the Gulf Coast, you know, obsesses about watching the track of the hurricane. So you can prepare a few days ahead of time. And so that morning, it was more like the second morning when it was uh, like, oh, wait a minute. Now power is failing. And now uh, people can't get in. Um, that's when we, I think lesson number one was the hurricane. We declared a sort of state of emergency within the institution well ahead of time because we're well versed on that. We're like, okay, three days out and the path looks like this and the cone of certainty looks like this. We have to declare this emergency. You get ride out teams, people come in, people just plan on the fact they're going to be here. That actually never occurred. And that was a lesson learned that we uh, never declared it as an emergency, which meant that while we offered people to stay in the hospital on cots and all this kind of stuff, we didn't require it. And so it was this weird sort of never, never land of, are you going to get relief? Are you not going to get relief? What's my role? Can I go to go home? Should I try to go home or not? And that was definitely a lesson learned. And that's where I stood where I decided the, I think it was the second morning or the first really bad morning. Um, I'm one, one and a half miles from work. I'm like, forget it. I'm just going to walk in because it's easier. It's not that bad on the, on the sidewalk, but I'm like, I don't trust Texas drivers on a good, you know, on a good day, let alone with ice <laughs> and guns in their car. So I was like, forget it. I'm just going to walk. Um, that's when I was like, Oh, no, this is kind of real. Nobody's out. I get it. I get it. Uh, then I think picking up more on like just the progression, then a lot of people decided to stay in the hospital anyway, because they're like, well, look, we know that there's emergency power. We know the water's working and they know they're going to feed us. So all like nursing staff signed up and said, well, we'll just stay over um, that first couple of days. Then the biggest problem out of all of it, and I think Jill will agree with me on this, the biggest disaster within the hospital had nothing to do with patients. It had to do with the fact that when we lost water and then we couldn't flush toilets in the institution, people will tolerate a lot, pardon me, it's okay. People will tolerate a lot of shit, but they won't tolerate shit, right? So that is when 
everything changed. Then all of a sudden people are like, we can't be here. This is discussed. We have to get out of here. All the emergency water that was trucked in was used for patient care. Um, then all of a sudden that's when the anxiety and anger level within the staff jacked up. Um, and once we settled that, because the whole, all of Houston lost water. So we had no choice. It wasn't just the hospital thing. The entire city lost water pressure. Up until then, things were manageable. And I think that was the difference between Harvey and here is that the water issue never became an issue in the hurricane because we knew and we had trucks, literally the hospital pulled up around the perimeter, uh, at least a dozen water tanker trucks just for this. Uh, but that caught us off guard. We didn't, we didn't know that that was going to be needed. Yeah, I mean, it goes right back to your point of like, um, just declaring it an emergency and sort of just changes the way you approach it and um, the resources you rally around it and even your expectations, your support, not just of the patients, but like the community and your providers and everything. Um, um, in terms of that, and Darren, this is for you as well, I think um, the past year has been somewhat of a smoldering crisis um, and you have hundreds of people looking to you for guidance and whether to know to be stressed or not be stressed. Um, I think one of my downfalls in the times that I've been in positions of leadership is knowing too much. Sometimes the information I know causes me to be overwhelmed, but at what point do you determine that, yes, they need to know this now, or let's just keep it. It's, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And just kind of not give all of the information, but determine the right time to give the appropriate That's information. Paul, I, I, this is Darren. You know, it's so it's fascinating when you describe this, and I'm thinking to myself, the parallels between this massive disaster that you all are trying to get ahead of and manage, and our day-to-day -day life in the ICU. Right? I always say to people, like, doing cardiac critical care is like telling people to walk through a minefield with a with a blindfold on and not step on a landmine. You know, no matter how good we are. There's disasters around every corner that often we can anticipate and sometimes we can't. And I'd be interested, I know this isn't my, I'm not the one supposed to be asking the questions, David, but it just strikes me as this is some, this is why I think a lot of intensivists wind up running hospitals and doing other things because our day-to-day -day life is disaster management, right? And so you, we do it, it's like micro and macroeconomics. We do it on a, on a day-to-day basis with on singular patients and on a unit level. And now you've taken it and blown it up onto a whole huge hospital system and beyond that, the city. And why you were saying, well, you went into this like, oh yeah, we got this, we're fine. And other people might be, you know, in a bit of a tailspin. What do you, is that, is there some truth to that? I, I think so. And, but I will say that it was also a hindrance because it kept me in both situations uh, clouded because I kept looking, let's use the traditional, going back to your description, I kept looking for the NEARS monitor or the SVO2 <laughs> drop, right? And by then I knew, like, I'm like, okay, fine. NEARS is stable, we're fine. Or even if you just said right off the bat, the SVO2 is 12 and the lactate is 15. Okay, I know that, I got that. That, that crisis is not a crisis. That's just a reaction I need to deal with. In the situation that you're describing, and it's a perfect analogy, I found myself falling into what I think is a normal pattern of behavior among humans, which is you default to things are gonna be fine. It's gonna be fine. We don't want it to be bad. So I kept thinking to myself, oh no, this is gonna be fine. 
And I think that intensivists by nature, as you said, there comes a point in any patient's existence where we sort of have to force ourselves. I know I do. I'm like, all right, that's it. In my mind, I'm declaring this child is sick. Everything changes. That's it. Yes, go ahead and hit the code bell because that will change the tone of everything. We just have to do this. And that may be where we're getting at where you're saying that intensivists have a little bit better job of it because, yeah, we're used to walking through the minefield, but we're also used to saying, all right, well, shit, my, my foot got blown off. Let's just deal with it. We're going to go with Stop it. The bleeding. Right? Now we have to declare yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Don't you find, have, have anybody else been in the situation where you're sort of at the bedside, you're like, well, I don't know, is the art line picking up? Is it not? And then, and you're like, forget it. And you lay your hand on and you start doing compressions and all of a sudden then you see the waveform and you're like, well, that's it. Now everything's done. Now we change. And that sort honestly, that is in all of the crisis situations I've been in, there is a mental um, threshold that you have to reach that it's okay to say, yep, that's it, it's happening, let's go. And uh, that was a lesson that I didn't expect to learn from basically all three of these sort of disasters. <laughs> well, I think, I, I have to tell you, I think one of the biggest things about leadership and crisis management is um, recognizing, as you were saying, Paul, sort of recognizing the gravity of the situation, using all the knowledge at your disposal, and yet maintaining a sense of calm for the people that are looking to you for leadership. And a lot of that is something that not everybody's well suited for. And it really has a significant impact on the way people respond to whatever the grieving crisis is, right? So if you or Paul were walking to the unit when everybody's in a tailspin because there's no water to flush the toilets with and you got into a tailspin, uh, chances are that recovering from that would have been a whole lot more difficult. Uh, conversely, the same happens when you walk into a room of an unexpected patient who's deteriorating. Um, the attending or nurse practitioner or nurse who walks in there and starts yelling and is screaming and looks panicked, that room takes on a very different tenor. And so part of the leadership through these, these phases, these crises, and something like COVID, which seems like a crisis that is never ending, um, is understanding when to you know, provide some of the detail, provide some of the information to people and not overwhelm them and not make their panic even greater. And uh, you ask a really good question and I don't think there's, a, there's no rule book that I can come up with for this. Uh, and, and a lot of what we, I think a lot of times our ability to be good at it is because we failed in the past, right? Um, and, and we've screwed it up. And so the way I try to do it myself is uh, I spend a lot of time watching people and trying to take the pulse of the room uh, without saying anything and listening to what I'm hearing and the tone of the speech that people are using and use that to guide what people need. Because a lot about leadership is helping people understand what they need when they don't under, 
they don't recognize it. Um, and that's when you start to pull those pieces of information that you have, Jill, and our folks, right? So just to capitalize on what Paul was saying, if Paul knew that um, there were water trucks being pulled up to Texas Children's, but he didn't know when and he didn't know the time and he didn't know who would have access to that water, it would have been a massive mistake to tell people, hey guys, don't worry about it, we got water trucks here, and then have nobody have access to that for 24 more hours. So it might have been a situation where holding on to that information until you knew exactly some of the what, where, why, who details. Um, and then once you had that information, then provide it so that you can actually, you're not over, you're not over promising and under delivery. And I think, you know, transparency is a good thing when it's not a good thing, right? And until it's not a good thing. Like I, I think of transparency of data but a lack of transparency of reaction. And that's where I, like, I don't mind sharing the data with everybody, but it's okay that, and Darren and Steve Schwartz know this because we are on a constant text string to keep each other sane over the past year. There were times during the freeze where I, I basically was like, oh no, this is bad. And this is really not gonna go well. But there was no way that I would be transparent with that reaction outside of a text string or close friends. Um, but what I do struggle with, and this, you know, Darren touched on as well, how transparent of the data, I, I don't know. I really don't know that I know that line in the sand of where you share everything um, and when you don't, because I also don't trust, and this is not to sound bad, but I don't trust people's reactions. I, I don't trust that everybody is gonna remain calm and I don't trust that people are going to see the big picture. And so I don't know how much to be transparent with the data, but I do, not to, I do know not to be transparent with my reaction. That is, that is internal voice and external voice is calm and that's it. Unless I've had a cocktail and then it's over. <laughs> what I was gonna say is that the, um, the ability to understand your audience and how well they are able to interpret the data that you're gonna give them. And not everybody's able to do that in the same way. And when you've got an audience that has very diverse and disparate levels of understanding and abilities to cope, you gotta be really careful with that. But the most important thing is like you said, Paul, the external face that, that the leader gives in a crisis situation is, is the most critical piece of the whole thing, I think. And I, I do think that that, for me, I will point to um, two biggest failures of the face of, of then that leadership. Um, one was Harvey, um, where I, you know, they declared an emergency and that meant we were supposed to be on the rideout team. And again, this is where I was like the face of calm. I'm not gonna buy into this this hurricane doesn't look that bad. I don't, I've never lived through a hurricane, it's gonna be fine. So I was on the rideout team and I went home that night before it hit. And that was a flat out 100%, I will declare it, huge mistake. Because at two o'clock in the morning, when I'm literally watching feet of rain accumulate outside my door and realizing, I can't even get the 1.4 mile back into the hospital in the rain. I was like that, okay, I screwed up. I screwed up big time. 
Um, and so I got up in that morning and instead of walking in the snow this year, I did the exact same route and walked through water. And there was a point when I was, and I'm not over-exaggerating, chest deep in water, walking, and then got to the Rice University campus, which is in between the hospital and my house, which is elevated by five feet. I'm like, oh, great. And then went back onto the street level just before the hospital. And it was like swift water at about calf level. And by that time I was exhausted, even from that walk. And I was like, okay, this is how people die, right? Because you're exhausted and you get swept away. I that face of no things are going to be fine i'll prove it to you as the leader and i'm not even going to take this seriously huge mistake huge mistake on my part and that's why i didn't i didn't follow that same pathway this time and tried to be more present and tried to stay within myself of what should or shouldn't be done but you're right there in the you, you screw up and that's when you make the mistake and i get it that old yeah that old saying Good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. But the best stories come from bad judgment. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> Can I talk a little bit about experience? Um, because, you know, this, this is not something that we learn in training. It's not something that we're taught. I never had a question on my cardiology or critical care boards about crisis resource management and that kind of stuff. Um, so tell us how... I know experiencing is how you learned it, but uh, did you have specific mentors that you watched to develop the way that you're going to react to these types of crises? Or was it purely, you know, you learned yourself and that's how you became the type of leader in these situations that you are now? I, I watch people and well, I love hearing the stories. Like um, we actually did a bit of one of these sessions at the World Congress that was in Singapore. And the speaker ahead of me was the trauma surgeon for, uh, was it, it was Manchester, wasn't it? Where there was the bombing at the concert, um, the Ariana Grande concert. And like, just basically described being inundated with all these, these patients. So I listened to those stories and, and then, the other thing, and this is something that, that um, was beneficial to me, as anybody who knows me knows, I'm not a detail person. I am 30,000 foot person. I am big picture. Um, I have learned to then pull the people who are detail persons, who are pure, pure anal retentive. I'm going to know every single pathway and protocol that there is mainly they're mostly in administration within the hospital when it comes to disaster management and stand out of their way, just as much as they may be in ways, uh, you know, a little uh, annoying to deal with at times, especially for me. Um, but uh, those are the people that I rely on and get out of their way and tell them, and they tell me, no, this is the standard operating procedure. This is what you're supposed to do. And I'm just like, okay, fine. I'm not going to argue with you on that. I don't know, Darren, is that yeah. the way you approach it too? That just like get detail people in those moments? Absolutely. I mean, there's no question about it. You have to recognize, David, I think there's two things I would echo what Paul said. Number one, um, I think one of the unutilized skills of being in healthcare, whether it's physician or NP or nurse, um, and developing leadership is that what I think some of the most exceptional clinicians are able to do is to 
formulate understanding by watching, right? You can stand at the, at the head of a room and look at the monitor and look at the patient and you can have a differential in your mind within 10 seconds of what you think is going on with that patient based on the A-line, the RA pressure, you know, the vent waveforms, the nears, you know what you think about that patient. That's, that's nonverbal, you get it. And I think those same, the other thing that we're able to do when you, the, the most astute clinicians are also able to read body language, read nonverbal communication, et cetera. And I think I spent a ton of time watching and that's how I've learned and developed my leadership style. And so I couldn't agree with what Paul was saying more. And then you also have to recognize what your strengths and weaknesses are. I am exactly like Paul. I'm a big picture person. I am not in the weeds. And um, I am quick to defer to people who are much better at that in situations of crisis. Um, you know, it's, it's when you have those routine Jayco visits, the unannounced Jayco visits that everybody loves so much. I get the hell out of the way and I look at people and say, okay, what do we need to do to prep this place so that we're ready? And then I spend my time making sure that everybody is ready and acts like we've been there before and, you know, we get in line. And that's how I try to influence the situation when I know that my strengths are not in a particular but now way. here's here's a danger zone, right? And I bet you we both have the same thing because somebody in the room, being that we're all ICU people, so we all swear to God we're better at everything than anybody else, right? Because we have we all know we do our jobs well. Somebody in the room in the middle of the disaster swears we should be doing the protocol differently, right? It's like no, 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 no. That was agreed to in the calmness of an office six months ago, do not reinvent the wheel while you're actually on the highway doing 110. That is not the time to reinvent the wheel. Just go with it. And if you if it's a mistake, you learn from it, you'll implement the new protocol next time, but not in the middle of the disaster. But everybody wants to do that. Everybody wants to say, well, maybe we should try this. This will be more efficient. No, no, don't. Just do it. Just do it. Or the, the other thing that's, there's no question about that, right? There's a, there's a time and a place for experimentation and the time and the place is not in the midst of the disaster or whatever circumstance you're preparing for. And the other, the other thing that I think is sometimes a challenge in these circumstances, and to get to your point, David, about learning um, leadership is how to manage the people who pop in who haven't been involved at all in the planning. And they might have a more, you know, a higher leadership role on an organizational level or whatever, but they've had no role whatsoever in the planning of this. And they walk in thinking that they're gonna tell you how to do this properly and what you are and aren't doing. And we have to be careful because I'm sure Darren, you and I, especially, we are, we sometimes are that person if we're not careful, right? <laughs> not, absolutely, I'll right. admit that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You have to be no open to people saying, shut up, leave, you're not helpful. Yeah. And that's one of the things that there's no question about that, Paul, you're hundred percent right. And again, it's the same deal, right? It's that it's being introspective enough to recognize when you need to just shut your mouth and, you know, speak when spoken to and act when necessary and otherwise don't right. do anything. Deference to expertise is an incredibly important uh, skill. And it's one that 
particularly in critical care, I think we're not always good at because we're the end of the line. People defer to us all the time. So our ability to defer to other people's expertise in certain circumstances is something that's challenging for folks. We're, you know, we're alphas. We're not, people don't self-select to do this work who are wallflowers and um, I'd like to be told what to do. Can I then shift and talk about something that, that to me was also, and it picks up on that, and that's the deference to experience and, and expertise, but also the deference to the team. And that's something that I definitely learned from, actually, again, from all three of the parallel or, or different crises. Um, you know, I'm, I'm staring in my office right now, and the title of the book is Patients Come Second. And that is absolutely true. Something that comes out in these type of events, the team is the most important thing. There were actually absolutely zero patient safety issues during either the freeze or the hurricane. We can look back and say that there was more sedation given during the Harvey week. Definitely. Like you, I mean, we tracked the sedation. Every kid got way more benzo. It's like, shut up. I'm not dealing with you right now. Just stay calm. <laughs> However, like, for example, in the freeze, when there was no water and all the trucked water was coming in and being piped in, we did a heart transplant. And the kid was out of the ICU in what, like, I think three days, Jill. It was like perfect, like the best streamed heart transplant ever, right? But it was the team dynamic that became an issue. For example, Harvey, when the first wave of relief was supposed to come in, and the streets were flooded to get to the hospital. So all the relief team couldn't actually physically get to the hospital. In the freeze, when everybody either was stuck and couldn't get in or worse, they're hearing about what was going on in their own homes when they said that, you know, they're hearing through the cell phone of their spouse at home that's now can't be recharged. So it's like, well, I, I've got about four more hours worth of uh, power on my iPhone to hear about, well, now the inside temperature of the house is 45 degrees because there's no insulation and no heat and the water stopped running and the kids are cold and we don't know where we're supposed to go. Should we drive to Dallas to try to find a hotel room that has energy or whatever? The stress of the members of your team and what they're trying to cope with externally became way way higher of an issue than yeah pharmacy is operating we're gonna we'll, we'll sterilize the instruments we got like the hospital cocoon became safety and that um we kind of we learned some from harvey but we're kind of still screwing that up right and i think if if i could redo disaster management training everybody wants to talk about well we need x number of people so that all these protocols to take care of the patients you got to spend as much time with protocols of how you're going to take care of your staff. And that gets way overlooked, I think. There's no doubt about it. I, I stay it all the time. This is the ultimate team sport. And uh, team management, I think almost, I wouldn't say it's more important, like you were saying, Paul, but there's no question that it has as much influence as anything else on outcomes, whether it be crisis management or patient outcomes. And I always say it's really interesting to watch an ICU. 
I think the most buttoned up, efficient, high quality care happens at the most tense times vis-a-vis census or crisis or what have you, because you, the team has no choice but to dot the I's and cross the T's and be hyper vigilant about everything. When the census is at 50% capacity or you know surgical volume is low for whatever reason because everything ebbs and flows, that's when anecdotally over the time of my career um, in leadership, I've recognized you know things like you know cardiac arrests, hospital acquired complications, infections, et cetera. That's when there's an uptick because people let their guard down and they get a little complacent. And, oh, that's that is absolutely the most annoying and dangerous time. Oh yeah, no question. Yeah. So uh, I think it, it, uh, you're, you've nailed it, Paul. The management and the preparation of the team is as important as all the preparations around the disaster. And it does actually fit with that third disaster, which is COVID, right? I mean, you know, once we got over the, okay, we have the right PPE, it's the, the ongoing stress until we all got vaccinated, the ongoing stress of what is this going to do to me? And I think, I don't know that I've ever seen a protocol or course that was specifically designed for disaster management of the fallout and the impact on your team, not how they're performing, but how it impacts them. I'm sure it's probably something in the military that would guide us, right? Where I don't know what the psychological well-being of a SEAL team is, but I bet you that there's something that pays attention to that or else they're all going ballistic, right? You know, uh, and that we really saw, like I said, it was fine until we couldn't flush the toilets. Then you just, you could feel the anxiety among the entire staff just start to jack up, right? I was just gonna say, the last thing I was gonna say is one of the leadership tenants that I try to take very seriously is doing, is just simple phrases and simple actions that let people know that you understand, but not that you're necessarily gonna fix it, right? Being able to say, you know what? I know this is this is brutal. This is really hard. Thanks for everything you're doing, right? Just simple, simple things like that go a really long way. Because the other challenge I, I've recognized in people who work in our space is that we want to fix things. We're not comfortable deferring to expertise in other areas all the time, and we're not comfortable at saying, you know what? I I can't do this. Right. And I can't make this better. I can't make this better. So sometimes we don't need to fix everything. We just need to acknowledge that it sucks and we're there with you and we're, we recognize it and nobody's going to work harder to ensure that we have a good outcome here than I will. And I'm here with you and we're going to do this together. And you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I will say that's also this round I found myself with a point of weakness that I reacted poorly to something like that, exactly like that. When I was still walking back and forth, because this thing lasted, what, till three days, four days, I think, total. And we had you know, no power during that time, but we had an emergency generator at the house. And so we had you know, three different families living with us because we had power and heat and all their pets and the cat and the dog were fighting and all this, right, whatever. Um, and, but I was tired and annoyed. And one of the faculty members was like, I need to get out of here because my family needs me. 
I'm like, well, what do you want me to do about it? I can't get anybody else in here because they're in the same situation you are. And I defaulted to the weak point of my own stress when I basically didn't acknowledge that, as you said, Darren, and instead basically said, well, but this is your job, deal with it. And I was like, oh, that, I, that I didn't do that well. I did not do that well. Um, I couldn't fix it. And so instead of just acknowledging it, I just didn't. And that was that, that's, a, I think that's another thing just to realize we're also in the same situation ourselves, right? And so uh, that's a, a leadership management in a crisis is something I probably need to do a little bit more of. Hopefully not with ice storms and hurricanes. Yeah, or, or, <laughs> or any more pandemics. Yeah. I mean, but you're also human and, you know, and under stress and nothing is ever going to go perfectly and things are always going to be like unexpected complications or ways we didn't plan. Just like you guys were saying earlier, it's probably one thing to sit somewhere and plan versus to like live it out. And um, I'm sure on the back end, there's probably a lot of meetings and debriefings, but I think it's also probably important to celebrate and bring attention to the things that learned from past situations that you know you did differently and all of these great teaching moments that you just shared with us that can be um, shared across different situations even if it's not another true crisis but even a code or even you know other volatile situations that we're gonna go through in the future so having a little grace as well the phrase I often use is humility as a competitive advantage and I think what Paul's describing is humility the ability to be able to say, you know what, I screwed this up. I didn't do it really very well. Um, that goes a really long way. And we're not generally, uh, certainly intensivists are not um, always easily able to do that. And that for the people that you're leading to see that Paul's willing to say, you know what, I screwed this up. I'm humble. I can learn. And I can also defer to expertise. That is not a weakness. It's a strength. Uh, so I was going to say, it probably feels terrible in the moment or uh, if you feel that on you, but as someone who's looking towards you as a perceiver, I actually see it just like you said, Darren, like a source of strength and, you know, someone who's able to say, you know, here's somewhere where I could have done better or here I'm human. Here are my um, weaknesses or barriers. And this is why we need each other. And this is why we need to talk about it. And it's, I, you know, I applaud, I really applaud the both of you for being so introspective and um, giving this space where we can all learn from each other and learn from it. Well, I appreciate it. I was just going to mention, I think this is something you and I have talked about before, Paul, is, uh, you know, both of you are obviously very highly respected leaders. And a lot of people look up to you to, for the example of how to lead. But we all see the good things that you do. I think that it's, it is very humbling for you to talk about that. But what I want to see is how, you know, how did you fail as a leader? You obviously didn't do anything, do everything perfect to get to where you are now. So what are the mistakes that you made along the way? And I think that that's huge and just as much of an example of how to be a leader than leading the right way. Yeah, and, and we all have our long, long laundry list of failures, but we end up not remembering them. And I think that's a good thing, right? We tend to remember the successes, which is great. Um, we obsess about the failures, but we remember the successes. Um, 
But uh, as long as it doesn't involve me uh, jumping in a pool in Miami after during a PCICS, that would be one of the big mistakes that I, that's a, was a humbling moment. And I seem to remember Sarah Tabbitt being the one that threw me in, which is even more humbling that she's stronger than I am. But uh, it's uh, I'm, I I'm may not or may not have pictures right, for a small fee. I'm not surprised. You you do have pictures. I know it, and we're gonna just ignore that. Um, but no, you're right. It, I will say one of the wins in my life was not following <laughs> you. <in that laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you never did get in there. Uh, well, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna redo that again at some point. We are gonna all be in person, and this this is actually the kind of conversation that's had best in person because you can read people's body language. And I do think that that vulnerability and humility, you can watch it. Like you said, Darren, if you're watching people, you, you, I physically have watched people step backwards as they're talking. And I'm like, wow, you're really trying not to talk about this, aren't you? <laughs> okay, so I think I'm going to probe a little more. Let's talk about that. <laughs> but I, I value that face-to-face -face stuff. And Jill, to your point about failures, you know, it's been a really interesting year for me because I changed jobs in the middle of a pandemic and I went from one leadership role into another. And I came into this new job intent that I was going to uh, lead by distinctly remembering, you know, past failures. And um, I, I reflect on the last nine months and I, I realize that there's been a lot of times when I've been able to do that. And there's been a lot of instances as well where I have failed in you know, my own ability to not make the same mistakes twice. Because at the end of the day, you know, we are who we are, right? And um, we're not always perfect and, and we're under times of stress, like you described, Paul, the example when you were, um, uh, de dealing with a faculty member during during the freeze, uh, you know, I've had instances where I've expected things to work in a particular way because of what I've been used to in the past. And I've had to pause and remember that I'm not in the same place and that I'm dealing with different people and um, acknowledge it and apologize to, to the folks that I work with. So it's an ongoing learning experience for everybody. And um, like you said, Paul, these things happen best when we're together. And I, I wanna just thank you guys for giving me the opportunity to talk about it because the more we talk about it, the more we can learn from each other. And um, every day is a different adventure in some way. Yeah, I, I echo that very much so. And, and I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a shame that it takes disasters to bring some things out in people, um, but it really does bring a lot of good things out in people. And so, and just think about the pandemic. Yeah, it, a lot of it sucks, but there's a lot of good still. If you can get through the bad parts, um, there is still good to be had. Awesome. Thank you guys both so much for joining us. I think that I've learned a lot during this conversation. I have a lot to reflect on and I am sure that our listeners will as well. So thank you both for your time. Thanks for having us. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you. And to all our listeners, thank you for joining us on the PCICS podcast, News Talk Edition. Please don't forget to go to our website, PCICS.org, to find out about job listings, how to become a member, how to get involved. 
um, and educational resources and much, much more. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or iHeartRadio or anywhere else that you listen to your podcast to get the latest episodes as they're released. I, the song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.